Hello and welcome to the Planet LP Podcast. This is the place where we drop the needle on a world of albums. I'm Ted Asaragadu, and get this, we're on episode 50. Yeah, in this episode, I'll be talking to Michael Goldberg, a noted author, about his new book that centers on a very talented San Francisco-based guitarist whose life took a tragic turn after experiencing the highs of stardom. In a way, the tale of this person may sound familiar to those who watched a little too much behind the music back in the day on VH1. His story does follow a bit of that narrative, but his story is also more than a well-worn rock and roll tale. We'll get to know more about this tragic story in a bit. If you haven't already, follow Planet LP on all the usual social media sites. Email me at ted at planetlp.com if you want to connect there and subscribe and follow Planet LP on most podcasting apps. Okay, with that bit of business slash self-promotion wrapped up, let's get into the dark side of San Francisco in the 70s and 80s by traveling down the dark highway of rock and roll. If I asked you what Chris Isaac is best known for, what song is he best known for? You'd probably say Wicked Game, which came out in 1989. Now, I can't play the original version that Chris Isaac recorded because of copyright permission issues, but I did ask my former Planet LP co-host, John Young, to play it just to poke and prod at your memory so you'll say, oh yeah, that song. Yeah, that song. That song really hit big when it was featured in the movie Wild at Heart, starring Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern, which was directed by David Lynch. Wicked Game was the first hit for Chris Isaac, reaching number six on the Billboard Hot 100 in the U.S. The guitarist who came up with that riff and played with Isaac for four albums was Jimmy Wilsey, also known as James Calvin Wilsey. Author Michael Goldberg has written a book on Wilsey's life titled Wicked Game, The True Story of Guitarist James Calvin Wilsey. It's published by Hozak Books. Michael was also a senior writer at Rolling Stone Magazine for over a decade and founded the first rock website called Addicted to Noise. Hello there, Michael, and welcome to the Planet LP Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, really enjoyed the book. I guess there's no point in burying the lead on this book, which is splashed on the cover, which is this, a punk rocker who hit the big time. He toured the world, played on a multi-million selling album, but died homeless. Indeed, your book starts at the end of Jimmy's life. One of the things I wanted this book to be was sort of a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was hoping that if musicians, particularly musicians in their, you know, twenties, thirties, read the book, they won't go down the road of, uh, of hard drugs. Yeah. Because it's really, um, it's really sad. The turn that, that Jimmy's life took. Well, I think that that comes forward very quickly in the book as you start, as I said, at the end of Jimmy's life, tragic that it was, but you really dive deep into his life. Like, you know, he was kind of a loner who in the mid seventies was 
he kind of channeled this sort of fifties era vibe, but also was a very gifted musician. You know, like one of his classmates in your book, uh, Bob Corey said he could learn and play any song, but he was also unfortunately getting high and drunk a lot. So drugs and alcohol kind of entered his life early on in his teen years. When he got into high school, that's when he started smoking weed. Yeah. And his friends would, on their way to school, you know, they'd smoke a joint. Some days, one of his friends would come over to his folks' house, and this would be on days when both of his parents had left, you know, to go work. You know, they'd have a gin fizz before they went to school. That's a time when there's a lot of experimenting that goes on, obviously, high yeah. school, college. In Jimmy's case, for a variety of reasons, um, it was unfortunate. And I was thinking about that time. I was a kid in the mid seventies. I, you know, Jimmy was born in, I believe in the fifties, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I do remember the mid seventies and I have older siblings and they have friends and yes, during the 1970s of that era, like the mid 70s, there was a lot more drug and alcohol use than, say, you know, the decade prior among teens. And so it's not like what he was doing at that point in his life was uncommon. Most people were very much sort of, you know, team marijuana or something, you know, very much about being very open about smoking pot. Alcohol, that it's a different kind of drug. And I think that for some kids, when they start drinking in high school, it can take on its a life of its own. It, maybe it's fun at the beginning. You're kind of sneaking some drinks and, you know, more than beers or maybe, you know, you're hitting dad or mom's liquor cabinet. And then, like you said in the book, they're having gin fizzes before, you know, first period algebra or whatever it was. And it's like, oh my God, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I could go to high school completely tipsy, or I don't know if they were full on drunk, but they're probably kind of tipsy. His father was in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. So it was a military family. To be the youngest in a family of with four kids, and then to have a strict father and uh, and a strict mother as well. So that's a factor. That mm -hmm. that can have an, an impact, you know, you're you're always worried about are they going to like jump on me if I do the wrong thing, if I say the wrong thing, if I'm too loud. But also if you've moved around a lot when you're young, that is also a, a fact can be a factor towards addiction. And that was the case with with Jimmy. He was also depressed as a kid, clinically mm -hmm. depressed. So these are all factors that can later lead to addiction. Also during his high school years, you really sort of highlight who his musical heroes were at the time, you know, uh, Iggy Pop, New York Dolls, Bowie, Lou Reed. And that would explain a bit why he joined the Avengers later, maybe. So talk a little bit about who the Avengers were and how Jimmy ended up playing bass with them, even though he, as he put it, played bass before. But the Avengers, they're featured prominently in your book. Yeah. Well, okay, so here's the thing. Jimmy, you know, when he was in high school, he really liked Neil Young. He loved the Rolling Stones. I mean, mm -hmm. he, was, he absolutely loved the Rolling Stones. You know, he liked the New Riders of the Purple Sage. He liked Jeff Beck. He liked Frank Zappa, Mothers of Invention. But at a certain point, he heard the Patti Smith group, you know, and the Patti Smith group, the first album, Horses, um, 
came out, uh, I think it was the end of 75, when he heard them and then he saw them, you know, they were on TV and he saw them play a couple of, couple of songs. That was kind of it. I mean, one, he was a huge fan, but two, this, the light bulb went off and it was like, Hey, I could actually play that. I could be in a band. If they can play like that, I, I could actually be in a band because when he listened to Jeff Beck, it was like, I could never do that. Yeah. Was, you know, it was like, Oh, forget it. You know, Jeff Beck, John McLaughlin. I mean, no, it's, but Jimmy had played, played, you know, with, with all these people in high school. But when he went to San Francisco, which he did when he was 19, he was going to go to school at the Academy of Art Institute. And he did start going to school there. But the, his timing was such, he got there in August of 1976. In December of 1976, the San Francisco club called the Mabuhay Gardens had the fir- their first punk show. And a band called The Nuns played there. Jimmy started going to the Mabue Gardens to see all the bands. Then, as time is going on, suddenly they were having punk bands every night. And San Francisco was exploding with new bands. Everyone was forming a band. One of those bands that formed was called the Avengers. And the Avengers was comprised of two people who were going to uh, the San Francisco Art Institute, uh, Penelope Houston, who became the singer, and Danny O'Brien, who who renamed himself Danny Furious and was mm-hmm. the drummer. Good good and, name, and, good stage name. <laughs> and, and Danny had his friend Greg Ingraham. Then there was another student there named Jonathan Postal. So they brought him in to play bass. They start playing some gigs at the Mabue. Jimmy goes to the Mabue one night, sees them. He really likes the Avengers, but he but he turns to his his girlfriend and says, I could play better than that. You know, I could do that and I could play better. And, and, and she's like, but you don't play bass. And he's <laughs> like, I could do it. So he runs into the singer, Penelope Houston at, at um, city lights books, which is a bookstore in North beach, just down the block from the Mabue gardens runs into Penelope Houston. And he says, Hey, could I play guitar in your band? And she says, no, but, um, do you play bass? We need a bass player. And he, right. and he lies and he says, yeah, sure. I play bass. Why she not? says, well, she says, well, talk to Greg. If Greg and Danny are cool with it, then, then yeah, we could try you out. Cause they wanted to replace Jonathan Postal. So Jimmy runs into Greg, uh, Ingraham, who's the guitar player in the Avengers runs into him at the Mabue gardens. Greg likes him. I mean, right off the bat, he likes him. He said, do you have a bass? And Jimmy says, no. Kind of comes uh, with the job, right? You should at least have the, the guitar. You know, and it. he yeah. says, well, um, can you do an, a, can you audition for us? Uh, Jimmy said, yeah, sure. Well, you'll, you'll bring a bass, right? <laughs> you'll have a bass. <laughs> and Jimmy says, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bring a bass. No problem. <laughs> you know? And, and, but Danny, I mean, Greg said, as soon as he met Jimmy, Jimmy gave off this vibe where it was like, I want this guy in our band. Mm-hmm. I don't care if he can play bass or not. I want right, him in our right. band. I mean, this guy is like so great. And that's a personality sort of. And and so anyway, um, Jimmy Jimmy shows up at the, at the rehearsal, okay? I mean, to audition. And he's got this uh, Hagstrom bass with him. And he's, he's laughing. And he says to Greg, 
Yeah, I, th- I stopped at a pawn shop on my way here and I bought this. Bought the base, yeah. yeah. I mean, but I mean, it's just like really funny. It's like he was so casual, right? He's on his way to the audition and he just stops randomly at a pawn shop and they happen to have, you know, a base and he buys it. Uh, it's just, I just think it's, but that's kind of how Jimmy was. The, the opportunity was there. Why not? If he already knew how to play guitar, I mean, he could probably, you know, bash out. Uh, you know, maybe maybe the little D string for a while or something, you know, and and it's it's punk music, so it's not so complex that he wouldn't have to learn really complicated parts. It was more along the lines of, yeah, jump in here and let's see how furious you can be. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, it's like three chords. I mean, that's yeah, basically yeah. what what a lot of the songs were at that point. So exactly, uh, exactly. Let's fast forward a bit to the Chris Isaac years and how Jimmy and Chris met up and. What would have been the uh, probably late seventies, early eighties? So, what was the music scene in the Bay Area like then? And how did Chris sort of come on to that and and cross paths with Jimmy? What's happening in San Francisco is you've got a pretty developed punk scene happening. The Mabue is the center of it. The Mabue Gardens. There's some other clubs now that are also having these bands play. Meanwhile, there's a couple of guys, a drummer named Britley Black, and then this guy named Mike Wilcox, who's a guitar player. Mm-hmm. They, um, they have heard that the thrift stores in Stockton are the place to go to get some really cool 50s-style clothing, like like rockabilly kind of clothes, which is what they want. For those who don't know the San Francisco Bay Area region, Stockton is a good haul. It's probably an hour and a half from San Francisco if you uh, if you travel outside the city. Okay, so these guys drive drive to Stockton, and they're at this thrift store, and there's two versions of this. Mike Wilcox said this young woman sees them. They look sort of like they're trying to be rock stars, you know, Mm -hmm. rockabilly stars. She asks them if they play music and they say, yeah. She says, well, my boyfriend, he's a singer and a guitar player and he's looking for, for, for musicians to work with. And so, so next thing you know, they're over at, or Wilcox anyway, is over at Chris Isaac's house. So that's one version. The other version is that Chris's mother told me that she was in the thrift store and she saw these guys and oh, okay. talked to them. Those are the two versions of what happened. Right. So they eventually become they, musical yes, they, partners, right? Well, they then, get, yeah, they get over there. They see, you know, Wilcox is impressed with, with Chris Isaac's singing. He says, hey, you need to come up to San Francisco. We can put a band together. I can play, I can play all the rockabilly guitar because Chris wasn't a very good guitar player at that point. Right. Um, so anyway, Chris starts coming up to the Bay Area, they put this band together. Wilcox ends up not being in the band, ultimately. And it starts out as, as a trio, and they start playing some some clubs around San Francisco, including the Mabue Gardens. Well, at a certain point, they have a manager now, and the manager, uh, this guy named Mark Plummer, he th- had asked Jimmy to play bass in the band and Jimmy didn't want to do that because he only, you know, he only wanted to play guitar. He didn't want to play bass anymore. Right, um, right. But at a certain point they got this Echoplex unit, which is a, which is a piece of equipment that you could put a vocal through or you can put a guitar through and it's, you know, it, it does the whole, that whole rockabilly echo thing. And that's what they wanted on Chris wanted on his voice. So they needed somebody to kind of handle this thing and to 
basically to do their sound. Jimmy got asked to do that because at that point, he, the Avengers had broken up. He wasn't sure what he was going to do, if he wanted to be in any more bands, but he did want to do music stuff. So he started mm-hmm. doing the sound for this trio. And the thing was, before and after the group played, he started showing Chris guitar parts. So they were mostly, they were doing a lot of rockabilly covers. And Jimmy knew all those songs. He knew all the, all the guitar parts. And so he could show Chris how to play the lead riffs for those songs. And in the course of this happening, they started becoming, you know, musical buddies. Chris got, he got sick of his trio. He broke up the trio. He kept, him and Jimmy kept working. And at a certain point, not too, but basically by, by about late August of 1980, Chris and Jimmy co-founded a new version of Silvertone and they brought in a bass player that Jimmy found. And then they brought the drummer, John Silvers, who had been in the trio. They brought him back. And now they had this quartet that was the new version of Silvertone. And that's how that all happened. Yeah. And the one thing that's interesting about that era, especially the type of music that they were doing Given what was going on in popular music during the 80s with a lot of new wave sounds. Now, this what Chris Isaac and Jimmy were coming up with was a real throwback sound to that 50s era. Now, the Stray Cats did that, too, and they got pretty popular with that throwback 50s sound that was sort of a little faster. But it certainly had that romantic feel of a different era that they were born into, at least those, you know, those principles of uh, Chris Isaac and, and Jimmy Woolsey, but grew up in the 70s. So they were kind of channeling back to this 50s era vibe, which was kind of different for for that time. One of the things that you note more than once in your book is the relationship between Jimmy and Chris Isaac. They were like a married couple. They meshed really well musically but their personalities were very different. Like Chris Isaac, I didn't know this about him, was a pretty straight arrow kind of guy. I mean, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he doesn't do drugs. He's very focused on his career and really into the business side of music because I think you do highlight this. At at one point, he decided that this is going to be his job. This is his career, his vocation. He's going to be a musician. And then you have the contrast with Jimmy, who, as you noted earlier, when he showed up for his audition with the Avengers, he picked up his bass guitar on the way to the audition. So he's sort of less of a structured kind of guy, but you have these two different personalities and these two different ways of seeing the world. One is just sort of like, hey man, it's rock and roll. Let's just create something. Let's do something. Let's get something going. And then you've got Chris Isaac, who's got like his five-year plan to really, I'm going to make it big and I'm going to get a hit song at some point and I'm going to make this my career. Therefore, I've got to protect things like my instrument, my voice, my ability to play because I see what drugs and alcohol does to people around me and I don't want that for myself. So that's what that was something I didn't know about Chris Isaac, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, Chris told me, not the first time I talked to him, but mm-hmm. but in 1985, when I talked to him, he was adamantly against drugs, alcohol, smoking. He had no interest in that. And in fact, he thought it really gave him an edge over the musicians who were mm-hmm. um, who were drugging and drugging and drinking. Yes, he was very, very ambitious. Jimmy was really ambitious too, but the difference was that Jimmy liked drugs 
he liked drugs, he liked alcohol, and that was part of, of who he was. But he was ambitious too. And the thing about Jimmy was, and many people have said, said this, he always had a guitar in his hand. He'd just be like lying on the bed with his guitar and he'd be like playing riffs or he'd be figuring things out. I mean, this was like a constant thing with Jimmy. He really wanted to be good at playing the guitar. And I think he had a natural talent, but that natural talent was paired with the 10,000 hours, you know, the the classic 10,000 hours. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, And and the thing was, Jimmy told me that one thing that really did unite him and Chris, aside from the fact that they both like country music, they both like rockabilly music, they mm-hmm. both like the mid early to mid 60s British invasions, invasion stuff, they were both ambitious. And it was kind of like other musicians that they knew in the San Francisco scene weren't that ambitious, but they were. We're talking about ambition <clears throat> maybe from a different perspective. I think with Jimmy, his ambition may have been a little bit more quiet, made may in some ways a bit more laid back, but he was definitely focused on wanting to do something in the music industry, be a musician, be a star, I would imagine. But I looked at his his life in San Francisco at the time. There was a couple of things that I noted one was he made the statement that in 1976, you could make it on 200 bucks a month, like $100 for rent and $100 for other incidentals like feeding yourself. But you also talked about the political climate in the 70s in San Francisco. There was definitely a big countercultural population that had come from the late 60s into the 70s to settle in San Francisco. But he himself was not a political leftist like those who would go out in the street and protest, that sort of thing. It was a different kind of vibe. It was more like a, a left-leaning libertarian type thing where you can come to the city, you can kind of make it with 200 bucks a month. Yeah, you could busk on the street, but you could create stuff. People generally left you alone. And that was the kind of San Francisco I was attracted to when I initially moved there back in the late 80s. But I always had this thing about, because I grew up in the suburbs outside of San Francisco, but when I would go into the city, I thought it was great because people could kind of do what they wanted. And there was a sort of a sort of a casual pluralism about the place. Like it didn't matter that you were a punk or somebody was into disco or somebody was whatever, whatever their musical style or their artistic taste was, there was a place for you in San Francisco. That that world does not exist in the city because of tech largely. But it's interesting to read about this time. And I think Jimmy and many like him were attracted to the city because of that kind of vibe that you could kind of do what you wanted to do. San Francisco is whoever you are. That's a place you you can be. That's a place where where you can live. And and it's not like you're going to be ostracized or or hassled. When the punk thing happened at the late seventies, though, I have to say that the mayor and the police were really anti-punk. And the police, would on a number of occasions went into the Mabue Gardens and arrested people for no real reason. And there were some bad scenes that went that went down because of, of what the San Francisco police were like at that particular time and where the mayor, who was Diane Feinstein, mm-hmm. was coming from at that particular time. Uh, and then the other thing was there was a big split between the sort of old school San Francisco music scene, which was 
pretty much controlled by Bill Graham at that point. <laughs> and the punks and the punks did not want to play, for the most part, didn't want to play Bill Graham shows. And Bill Graham didn't want to have anything to do with the punks at first. Until he realized he could make some money with it. Yeah. But you're yeah. right about San Francisco. I mean, Diane Feinstein comes out of uh, she becomes mayor after Mayor Moscone is killed by Dan yes. White and and Harvey Milk as well. So she ascends to this top position, not through an election, but certainly because she was next in line. I don't want to get too political about that era, but that easy pluralism that I talked about earlier, yeah, it's fragile. And at that point in the mid-70s in San Francisco, it had broken down many times. And as you, you highlighted, even the cops were coming in and busting up punk shows just for really no reason at all. Maybe they just didn't like punks hanging out on Broadway. That kind of tension was certainly there. So I don't want to romanticize San Francisco too much from that era. I was attracted to it as a a young boy and even a teenager because of the things that I thought were creatively possible in that city. You know, you could pretty much come from whatever point of view you wanted and there was a place for you. Nobody really had a problem with the fact that, you know, whether you were straight or gay or what color you were or, you know, what your artistic tastes were. Yeah, there was a place for you in San Francisco. So that part of that, that romanticism, I do have a little bit of it, but I understand the real history of it too. It wasn't always, you know, a land of of wonderful possibilities. There was a lot of conflict that was going on in the 70s. Yeah. I lived in San Francisco during that, that whole time. I mean, mm-hmm. I... I moved to San Francisco around 75. So I was there from the very beginning of the punk scene. As a young kid, I had gone to free concerts in Golden Gate Park where Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janis Joplin and the Jefferson Airplane and all these bands played. I grew up in Marin County. So I actually lived through a lot of what is in this book. So in a way, it's it's a bit of a biography about you in a way, because you do insert yourself into the story. I we're, do. We're kind of talking around a little bit of the, the big hit song. It's in the title of your book, Wicked Game. So let's, let's uh, fast forward a bit to that era, because Chris and the band that Jimmy was in, they couldn't call it Silvertone any, anymore because of a Sears product that was called Silvertone, and they were afraid they were going to get sued. So it just became Chris Isaac as the name of, well, of the that's, group. Yes. When Warner Brothers got involved, the record company, mm-hmm. they were not going to let the band, they couldn't put out a record that was by a group called Silvertone because they were they were uh, concerned that, yeah, that Sears would, would sue them. But the mm-hmm. thing is, as Chris Isaac said, he wanted it to be Chris Isaac. He was the ah, singer. He was the right, front guy. Right. He was writing the writing the songs. He he said, "I wanted my picture on the cover of the album." The other thing that had happened earlier on was that, um, you know, originally, I mean, Jimmy thought they were partners, and you know, when you're partners, well, you split the money, and so right, 50-50 I think, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I evenly. think I think initially, even though Jimmy and Chris were actually the leaders of the band. And initially it, it was like the four guys who were that version of Silvertone. It was like, they were sort of partners, you know, kind, kind of like that. But mm-hmm. at a certain point, Chris decided that he was doing a lot more of the work, uh, you know, cause he had to do all the interviews. He had to do all the photo sessions because they, cause people wanted pictures of him. Mm-hmm. And so he decided that he deserved more money than the other guys. 
There was also an issue of the bass player and the drummer who were in the band when him and Jimmy formed that second version. Eric Jacobson, who was their producer and co-manager, and in case people don't know who Eric Jacobson is, Eric Jacobson produced The Love and Spoonful in the 60s. He produced seven top 10 songs for them. He was kind of a major guy, and he had he had become their manager and their producer. Eric just felt like the drummer and the bass player weren't cutting it when they went in the studio. And Chris agreed, and I think Jimmy agreed as well. So it, basically, it was pretty much those guys were going to be asked to leave at a certain point. But before that happened, uh, Chris decided that he wanted the money to be different. He wanted 40% of the money from from any record sales that would happen. And, and the other three guys would each have 20%. And so there was a contract. And Jimmy signed the contract that said that he was only going to get 20% now. Right. He wasn't happy right. about it, but he wanted to keep playing. And so, so he did sign that. The drummer wouldn't sign it. And so the drummer got the boot at that point. And then after a while, they asked the bass player to leave. And so then it's Jimmy and Chris and Eric Jacobson. And those are the three that recorded most of the first album, Mm -hmm. the first Chris Isaac album. And then after that album was finished and they had a deal with Warner Brothers, then they hired the current drummer and bass player, Kenny Dale Johnson, who's the drummer, and uh, Roland Sally, who's who's the bass player and who have been with Chris ever since. Uh, But they were put on salary. So basically what happened at that point was Chris was getting 80% of any money that would come in from record sales or or use in movies or any of that. And Jimmy was going to get 20%. So as I was reading your book and I came to that section about the, about the split in terms of revenue, I thought, I put the book down and I said to my wife, I'm like, rock and roll, man, every time. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, anytime there's a contract sign and the money starts coming in, then the conflict starts to amp up a little bit. Uh, you know, One person wants to be the star. Other people feel slighted. And now you can see where a, a kind of a rift is going to start to occur. But Jimmy and Chris ended up working together for four albums with Jimmy playing on half of uh, San Francisco Nights. The final Chris Isaac album he played on is called San Francisco Days. San Francisco so, Days. Yeah. I said Nights because yeah. the lyric does say San Francisco Days, San Francisco Nights. Right. I believe. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, once once that era sort of ends, to me, the Chris Isaac sound is really framed by the fact that he had this great guitarist that could do these very expansive riffs. And so we've been dancing around the song Wicked Game, but that's the song that really made them popular, made them have a hit, made them uh, find that their success as musicians was on the ascent, playing for bigger crowds, making more money. Things were looking pretty good. And if it wasn't for the inclusion of that song in the film, Wild at Heart, it's hard to know if it would have gotten that kind of traction or not, because it really had a haunting sound. And if it wasn't for James's or Jimmy's work on that, I'm not sure that song would have really kind of taken off because the chords are very simple. The backing chords are very simple, but it's just that work. And maybe we can play a bit. I know I said at the outset of the podcast that we couldn't play the original version that was recorded 
for the album, Heart Shaped World. But we can play a bit of a live version that Jimmy did for Geek Fest, I believe it is. Is that right? Yeah, it's a it's an annual event that's part of a bigger multi-day musical instrument thing happening. And one day they have a bunch of concerts at one of the facilities. Here's a bit of Jimmy playing from that event. but it, it kind of moves in a different direction it's more it's more raw uh, than what ends up in the uh, on the original recording but certainly he has a, almost like a signature style at this point and i think that that carries over beyond his work with chris isaac to 2008 when he released a solo album called el dorado talk about how that how that album came about well jimmy had been talking about making a solo album for years finally in 2007, he does this in his dining room on a computer. He records this incredible instrumental album. You would never think that this was done on a computer, that he was using simulated amplifier sounds for most of his guitar sounds. We can hear some of this because I got permission from the record label and they said, yeah, you can play snippets. That's cool. Go ahead. So here's a little sample from that record. This is the title track, El Dorado, James Wilsey. David Lynchian. And when I hear that music, I'm like, wow, it's very cinematic. This could easily be put into a movie. And I'm surprised no one has picked it up, especially Lynch. They preceded David Lynch Mm -hmm. in terms of, it wasn't like they got the idea for that sound from David Lynch. No, no, no. I'm saying that this is a very cinematic sound. When I listen to it, I'm all like, yeah, it could be a soundtrack. This could totally work in a film. Well, that's why that album even happened. Because 
the record company that signed Jimmy was actually a film company. And, oh, and, okay. and the guy who signed Jimmy, basically he was looking for really, really good musicians, artists who, for whatever reason, had stopped recording the people who did music that he thought could fit into their films. And he wanted to create kind of an archive of music. So when they needed instrumental music, they could just pull it out. And in fact, after um, they signed Jimmy and, uh, and put out the album El Dorado, they also started putting those songs into their movies. And they ah, put them into a, a, number of their, yeah. a number of their movies. Let me play another track, another selection from El Dorado. It's not as dark as the title track and tone. To me, it's more bright. And it's called Last Chance. on the label that put out this record that they were building an archive of film music. I did not know the backstory, but when I was listening to it, I'm like, wow, this could really be in a movie. And now I know why. It sounds like it could really be in a movie because a lot of it was some really great work. And I really would encourage Planet LP listeners to seek out this record. If you stream, I found it on Apple Music and I was able to listen to it to my heart's delight. And I listen to it often now. So El Dorado, a really strong instrumental record from Jimmy Woolsey. Very good stuff. It's a great one. And your book comes out, the, the release date is in June. So we're recording this in may so we're about a month out from the release date of your book and it's called wicked game the true story of guitarist james calvin wilsey published by hozak the author is michael goldberg he's been my guest for the entire session of episode 50 of the planet lp podcast michael i want to thank you so much for being on the podcast great i really appreciate it and i hope that um, if people are interested in the book i hope they'll go to the hozak records website, Hozak Records mm-hmm. and Books website, because if they buy it directly from there, I'm donating 25% of any royalties I get to Jimmy's son, Waylon Wilsey. Waylon's a teenager. He doesn't have a father. He's been you know, being raised by a guardian since since Jimmy died. The money will go toward his college education. Um, so that would be a nice thing. And also myself and Hozak is an indie record company, indie book company. So we all make a lot more money when someone buys the book directly from their website as opposed to Amazon or somewhere else. Right, right. Absolutely. So So what I'll do is I'll put a link on the Planet LP website so people, if they just go to the link for this episode, it'll have a link to buy the book from the publisher itself. Thank you again, Michael, for being on the podcast. And that's a wrap for now. I'll be back soon to talk more about music and sometimes books about music right here. Planet LP Podcast. Bye for now.